Hello, I'm Greg. Welcome to a talkback episode for Inappropriate Conversations number 60, 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, Part 2. I'm releasing these talkback episodes in back-to-back days here in 2021, so if you started with Part 2, just make note that there's another episode on this feed, probably just immediately before this one, for the talkback to Inappropriate Conversations number 59. The two of them go together. And I'm going to keep this introduction very short because I don't want to break up the flow between where the first part of this original podcast recording ended and the second part began because the beginning of this one and the ending of the last one pull two parts of the same speech together into what could be a single single thread. But by way of introduction, I'd like to point out just a couple of ironies because these ironies are consistent with the kinds of ironies that I was speaking about when I wrote this um, Ten Areas of Agreement about abortion speech in the 1990s and recorded it in, originally in 2011. One of them is that we're hearing some really strange inconsistencies coming from certain people in the United States Senate about the uh, upcoming trial phase for the second impeachment of Donald J. Trump, the former president, the 35th president of the United States. And part of the reason that this, this impeachment trial process is so important is that it is essentially going to be a ruling on whether or not we as a country are going to endure, again, what we endured maybe not only for the last four years, but even specifically what we've endured in the last four weeks with the behavior of the president and his supporters at the end of his term in office. Uh, Impeachment has with it a co-function of a secondary vote to basically say, as a result of this conviction, it also means... You can't run for elective office again. But what we're hearing from certain Republicans in the Senate in particular is that it doesn't make sense to have had a trial for Donald Trump just before the Senate was about to change hands from Republican control to Democrat control. So the uh, intent of Mitch McConnell, for example, was to under no circumstances begin a trial until after Inauguration Day. Now, after Inauguration Day, Trump's no longer president of the United States, And now that same former majority leader of the Senate is saying that it it may not make sense to have a trial now because Donald Trump is no longer president. So it's it's a bit of self-dealing. We can't put him on trial for his misdeeds while he's president, but we also can't put him on trial after. And it it harkens to some of the things that the U.S. Supreme Court has recently ruled on the Emoluments Clause by saying that, well, there's no reason that the president should be held to account for um, unconstitutional behavior he did uh, to his profit while president of the United States because now he's no longer president. It's hard for me to imagine a world where that was the intent of even one of our founding fathers, let alone all of them collectively. The reality is what the Supreme Court has done with their emoluments ruling is they basically said that they're opening up the floodgates for the presidency in particular to be a place where any con man in any future time, can come in and fleece this country. You can come in, you can, um, you can jack up the prices of your hotels, you can force foreign leaders to stay at hotels that pay you directly as the owner of those hotels. You can redirect military flights to uh, locations that don't make any sense from a command and control perspective, but put the military within a couple of hours of your your uh, resort property in Scotland, and then force the United States government to pay the bill not just for the transportation of people from that airstrip to your resort, 
but to charge the maximum fee to the United States taxpayer for the cost of having military personnel stay at the president's golf club kind of a situation. You can do all those sorts of violations of the Emoluments Clause and worse, and all you've got to do is appeal, 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 stall, delay, appoint your own personal buddy as attorney general, and ensure that by the time the case actually gets to the Supreme Court to be decided upon, the time runs out on your term and the Supreme Court rules that you have to face no consequences whatsoever now that you're not the president anymore. It's clearly a vacuous political position, and therefore this is a vacuous judicial ruling on the emoluments side of the coin. There's got to be consequences for behavior. And the consequences for behavior don't run out, you know, just because you've somehow gotten to some proverbial border and crossed over to the other side. Uh, In many cases, these red-letter constitutional guidelines don't have a statute of limitations attached to them. And perhaps maybe the new U.S. Congress is going to have to do things to put teeth where there weren't previously teeth in aspects of constitutional law because, well, frankly, no president of the United States prior to this one was ever so brazen in violating not just the Constitution itself, but almost all of our standards and our mores and guidelines that precedent doesn't seem to matter. So as I bridge from this short introduction to the rest of the speech called 10 Areas of Agreement About Abortion, I'll just restate what I said at the end of the introduction to uh, Talk Back for Inappropriate Conversations 59. Here at the second half, Inappropriate Conversations 60, I have yet to hear the points of view I'm presenting here in 10 parts refuted in any intelligent way by anyone. Now, I've shared these with pro-life members of my family, my wife's family, friends, people at church. I've never gotten a counter-argument that has made me go back and say, you know what, yeah, I really need to rethink that. I was, I was totally misguided in my perspective about whether or not um, human beings are an endangered species. I, I, there's a whole aspect of that that I missed and I need to redo it, I need to restate it, I need to rethink it. It hasn't happened. I'm 10 for 10. And the unfortunate thing is that if you present 10 areas of agreement about abortion and no one can contradict those agreements, you'd think that would lead to positive forward motion. But maybe I was a very early, mid-90s recipient to this concept of alternate facts that we've heard so much about in the last four or five years, that maybe the seeds of what has become a real problem comprehending truth and a problem having civil intelligent conversation around truths, maybe I was onto that some 20 years earlier. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about 10 areas of agreement over abortion. Part 2. We'll be picking up directly where we left off last time. Agreement 6. 
America could not provide adoptive homes for more than a million children per year over limitless successive years. As a nation, we are of at least two minds about adoption. From a pro-choice perspective, adoption is one of the predominant other choices, and that makes it crucial. On the other hand, adoption often puts the same pro-choice proponents in a defensive posture because their political opponents clearly want to replace the bad choice of abortion with the good choice of adoption. Pro-life groups are no more comfortable with adoption, though, while heralding the practice as the primary solution to the problems leading women in dire circumstances to consider an abortion, conservatives view adoption as essential but far from ideal. Pro-life ideology looks toward a world where abortion is not necessary, obviously, but also toward a world where adoption is not necessary either. After all, family values is about keeping families together, not about sending unwanted children off to live with someone who is, hopefully, less neglectful or abusive. I have been aware of these clashing values for some time now. A few years back, I referred to adoption as the lesser of two evils in response to the paradox adoption presents on both sides of the political spectrum. This article may be covered at a future time. As you might imagine, my approach made many people unhappy, both pro-life and pro-choice. Still, I believed then, as I do now, that the contrasting ideals both polar groups hold for adoption do not pose an obstacle to Agreement 6. In fact, the ideals serve to reinforce the agreement. America could not provide adoptive homes to more than a million children per year over limitless successive years. Let's take a few points for granted. 1. More than 1.5 million abortions are performed every year in the United States. 2. Apart from a small number of cases, less than 3%, where the abortion is medically necessary to save the life of a woman or prevent permanent physical harm, abortions are performed on women carrying unwanted children. 3. Arbitrarily grant that perhaps 8 to 10% of the remaining children would die shortly after birth due to viability problems. 4. Finally, a whopping 20% of the remaining pregnant women decide to keep the child and provide a stable home, not an abusive situation that would make us resort to foster care at a later date. What's left? Well, one million children would be born in a world without abortion into orphanhood. This number is not 1 million children since 1973. Since 1973, the number of additional children left to adoption would probably exceed 30, 40 million. Furthermore, each new year would add 1 million more children to the adoption process. This translates into a mess that even the most fervent supporters of adoption must fear. In an earlier agreement, I touched upon the false assumptions made by opponents of zero population growth. To restate... We don't have a world population problem because we have plenty of resources to satisfy all people's needs. People are starving only because of inadequate distribution. Fix distribution problems and all of our problems will be solved. Therefore, population growth does not need to be arrested. My response, if we cannot feed 6 billion people for any reason be it lack of food or unwillingness to share or inefficient means of transportation, then we must consider calling for a stop to population growth. Let's find a way to distribute 
our bountiful resources to 6 billion people, many of whom are starving, before we try to spread our effort to 10 billion people. A similar problem exists with adoption. The pro-adoption movement, which I distinguish in this manner because it is not exclusively pro-life or pro-choice, is outspoken about the number of desperate adoptive homes waiting for children. Beyond any consideration of whether there are 30 million homes or 40 million homes or 50 million adoptive homes or 100 million, 100 million homes, by the way, is roughly the entire current U.S. population, we have to answer a nagging question. That being, if all these parents are waiting for unwanted children to adopt, then why are there orphans living in America today? I mean, if we have more people wanting to adopt than there are children to provide, then how can there possibly be a child awaiting an adoption? We all know the answer. We know it even though we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it because... It's an embarrassment. What is this dirty little secret? Some children are unwanted before birth, and sometimes those children are killed before birth in abortions. Some children, though, are unwanted after birth. As a nation, we have not formed a consensus about either of these tragedies of the unwanted. Pro-life groups usually suggest that eliminating abortion will provide more wanted children for the waiting parents to adopt, those parents unwilling or unable to adopt from the current group of unwanteds. The pro-life approach fails to realize that increasing the number of wanted adoptive children will also increase the number of unwanteds. Pro-choice groups lean toward a simple comparison of numbers, saying that X number of orphans are available for X number of awaiting families. This holds no regard for each family's ability to deal with the prospect of adopting a child who is older, perhaps mentally or physically disabled, or even deemed incompatible for reasons as obvious as racism. Ironically, the pro-choice approach to filling adoption needs ultimately would force adoptive parents to accept an unwanted child. While those same groups actively defend a woman's right to kill in order to not accept an unwanted child. I apologize to anyone who, until now, believed adoption to be a neat and tidy matter. Sorry, but it's a mess. Clearly, both pro-life and pro-choice groups do not have the answers. No, they only add to the ideological mess. I don't have any answers here either, except one. It is clear that we are not doing an adequate job at the present time of providing adoptive homes effectively. We all should agree that adding a million new children to the process every year over limitless successive years is not going to help. Before we try to feed a double-expanding world population, let's first demonstrate that we can distribute the resources we have to the number of people who desperately need them right now. Don't add to the misery. If you'll pardon me for tarnishing the golden fleece we call adoption, the same principle applies to the status of those children our society still deems unwanted after birth. Agreement 7. After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, a woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. For anyone keeping score, we are well past the halfway point, in these agreements. I know that up to this point, 
a number of these agreements have been hard to swallow. As obvious as they are, I assume that many on the extremes of pro-life and pro-choice movements remain adamantly unwilling to agree with anything that crosses their ideological line. No problem. A number of people still believe that the earth is flat, too. Hopefully, my tone hasn't been overtly confrontational up until now. Yes, I have asked for pro-lifers to agree that abortion is not murder. Yes, I have hinted to Christians that Jesus Christ couldn't care less what amendments are in or out of our Constitution. Yes, I have not hedged even slightly on the notion that abortion is the killing of an unborn child. No doubt, pro-choicers wince at how directly I assign the responsibility for this killing to the woman, which is, of course, where it belongs. Although I have casually noted that pro-life groups seem to care only about the rights of the child, and pro-choice groups seem to care only about the rights of women, I have yet to push and shove. Until now. Now is the time for me to ask anyone who is struggling to accept these agreements to, so to speak, put your money where your mouth is. T. H. Arthur. You can call me Trey. Most people do. However, if you were going to write me a check, my banking goes much more smoothly if I'm identified by name on payments in the same form as my account's signature card. That reads, T.H. Arthur. Why do you need to know this? Well, Agreement 7 states, After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, a woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. Some of you may believe you disagree with this agreement. The pro-life movement in particular has a strong connection to waiting periods, both honestly and dishonestly. Mostly, waiting periods are designed to create another hurdle in the abortion process, to increase the cost by increasing the time involved, and to effectively ban abortion procedurally. It's a dishonest tactic. Rather than calling for and abiding by a vote to make all abortions illegal— the waiting game takes the power to decide away from a majority that simply cannot join a pro-life consensus. If you do not believe that pro-life support of waiting periods is dishonest, then answer this. Would pro-life groups support legislation to enforce a 10-month-long waiting period for all pregnant women if it had a chance of truly becoming law? Well, the answer is obvious. Certainly pro-lifers would jump on that bandwagon. That kind of waiting period would have the same effect as an abortion ban. Of course, this point only serves to underscore how dishonest the whole waiting period approach truly is. Americans won't ban abortion, so pro-life lawmakers try to legislate around the lack of national consensus. Ostensibly, a waiting period is not a ban on abortion. It is only a way of assuring that the woman is considered her choice fully. We all agree that abortion is a bad thing, and no one should rush into a decision where the primary choice involves a bad thing. Now, this view of waiting periods as a contemplative, meditative act of reflection is an honest one. Yet, its relative degree of honesty when compared to the use of waiting periods as many bans cannot conceal its logical flaw. Waiting periods assume that a woman hasn't already contemplated her situation. I believe that I can prove to you that she has. Here's how. 
If you believe that a woman needs an extra day of waiting after scheduling an abortion to decide if she is doing the right thing, then pull out your pen and write me a personal check for $500. It's that simple. You have the power to change my mind. You can persuade me that women do indeed need this extra day. Just write me a check for $500, knowing that you are throwing the money away in the process. I will cash your check, and I won't give you the money back. My guess is that my voice will not be drowned out by the scratchy sound of pens scribbling on checkbooks. I understand that. You will need time to think this over. Even if you make a more than comfortable living, $500 is a lot of money to give up, especially if you feel like you are being forced to do it. It would feel even worse if you didn't like the points I'm raising, because then you would be spending some serious cash on a bad thing that you may be embarrassed to reveal later to friends or even family. Guess what? You are now experiencing exactly one iota of what a pregnant woman grappling with an abortion decision feels like. Does my $500 analogy apply to all pregnant women? No, it only applies to pregnant women with cash flow that limits their ability to travel internationally. A woman wealthy enough to throw $1,000 a year at an abortion clinic without worrying about frugality is a woman who could easily avoid a waiting period just by traveling to Europe, Mexico, or Canada. She could, in fact, take the same trip if the waiting period lasted 10 months, if you know what I mean. For this reason, my $500 analogy only applies to women who cannot afford to waste $500, or whatever an abortion may cost. To get back to my financial offer, I believe the woman who has scraped, saved, or borrowed money for an abortion, after grappling with the moral and social pressures long before she knew the financial costs has already spent her waiting period in careful contemplation. Should the doctor or clinic be required to tell her all information, both positive and negative, about the procedure? Yes, I am strongly in favor of information. That is why, of course, I could not support President George H.W. Bush's decision to gag order doctors who provide family planning information to patients. Favoring the dissemination of information spreads both ways. Once the woman has looked at all the information, decided to seek an abortion, consulted with her doctor to perform the procedure, and scheduled an appointment, she has fully satisfied any definition of the term contemplation. Again, we are talking about an expense of several hundred dollars. In this case, the waiting period only applies to the woman who cannot afford to ignore frugality. Does anybody really believe that an extra 24 hours of reconsideration is an honest expectation? If so, write me a check. That's $500 to T. H. Arthur. Write the check because you believe that kind of money can be thrown away on a potentially regrettable decision without any serious contemplation. I have just become a wealthy man if stereotypes about the membership strength of the pro-life movement are correct. Accepting this money will forever silence me on one point of agreement over abortion, but millions of dollars in non-contemplative expenditures will have to suffice as compensation. More likely, I'm not going to see a single check, name spelled correctly or not. That said, I'm still asking you to put your money where your mouth is. We concur. After agreeing to pay a clinic several hundred dollars, 
A woman does not need an extra day of waiting to decide if she is doing the right thing. It's just that simple. Either accept this area of agreement or write me a check for $500 now or shut up if you're not honest enough to do either. Agreement 8. Most Americans do not know the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 women, and certainly none can name that many new acquaintances for each calendar year. Thus far, all the agreements I have covered target those with firmly entrenched, perhaps even extreme, ideologies. Agreements 1, 2, and 3 cover the notion that abortion is the killing of an unborn child, granting without comment that abortion stops a beating heart, which is obvious and tautological. At the same time, these agreements point out that abortion is not murder, because those who say it is do not treat it as such. Nor do those who would link abortion to the extinction of the human race really believe that the sky is falling. Agreements 4, 5, 6, and 7 address why abortion cannot, and probably should not, and really will not be banned in this country, including some discussion of how misguided attempts to make abortion illegal will not achieve their moralistic goals. In Agreements 8, 9, and 10, I would like to look toward the center, away from the black and white extremes from both sides, and uh, you know, more toward efforts to moderate. The polar groups battling over the high ground in the abortion debate don't moderate as much as the word might imply. Pro-choice groups do go as far as granting that many abortions are bad choices, excluding cases of rape, incest, and threats to the life and health of the woman. Pro-life groups serious about amending the Constitution often join this compromise. Generally, though, pro-life groups hesitate to moderate much beyond providing an exception to preserve the life of a woman or save her from devastating health complications. Pro-choice groups rarely accept such a limited list, and often the specifics of defining health complications bog down any compromise. For example, how devastating is a complication that renders a woman incapable of future childbirth? Despite the fact that common ground is just as elusive in efforts to compromise as it is in the sloganeer's efforts to demonize, clearing up some misinformation should open the door for a few more agreements. Part of the reason pro-life moderates are willing to join in a rape-incest-health compromise with pro-choice moderates is numerical. This field of exceptions, abortions allowed through this deal even in a constitutional ban on the procedure, is usually described as 3% or 2-3% to of all abortions. Clearly, pro-life moderates seeking a compromise would be elated at banning 97% or more of all abortions. They incorrectly believed that the abortion business would completely dry up because of how small this number seems by comparison. Agreement 8, however, irrevocably disputes the claim that this number is small at all. To the contrary, most Americans do not know the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 women, and certainly none can name that many new acquaintances for each calendar year. What does that mean? It seems obvious to include in an otherwise challenging list of agreements. Furthermore, what does it have to do with abortion? Say that 1.5 million abortions are performed every year, and say that only 2% of those abortions qualify for exception due to the rape-incest health of the woman. This estimated number will be low. 
particularly if you include sterilization among the health-related issues, the number of abortions qualified despite this ban would exceed 3%. To view the numbers conservatively, though, 2% of our annual abortion rate is 30,000. That is 30,000 this year, another 30,000 last year, and the year before that, and the year before that, not to mention next year. Even if you argue that a number of these women are repeat recipients of abortion services, to which I respond, repeatedly impregnated by rape or incest? Remember that 3 plus percent of the same number is more likely to be 50,000. It doesn't really matter whether you choose a target number of 30,000 per year or 50,000 per year or even 20,000. We are talking about an unbelievably large number of women. Is this number comparable to 1.5 million unborn children? No. But does that make the number small or inconsequential? If so, then conduct an experiment for me. I'll give you a couple of hours and you give me a list of the 30,000 new female acquaintances you have met for the first time this year. Why haven't you started? What's the matter? You're probably thinking, hey, even if I could list the names and telephone numbers of that many women, it would take a lot more than two hours to create such a directory. After all, I'd have to record more than four names and numbers per second. Do you know how I would respond to that? You are exactly right, and any insignificant list that you find impossibly large must not be so easily dismissed. While making compromises to save the children, we often find it too easy to subtract the faces from the nameless numbers of desperate pregnant women. As I'll cover a little later, it is reasonable to expect a woman who fears for her life to consider killing as an option to save herself. Multiply that desperation by 30,000, and you begin to see why most of us don't take this effort at compromise very seriously. We cannot hold serious esteem for anyone who claims that he or she can list the names and telephone numbers of more than 30,000 new acquaintances for each passing calendar year. Therefore, the effort to make exceptions for these women only underscores two polarizing facts. One, pro-life groups, if true to their word could never make a deal that would guarantee the killing of that many unborn children. And two, if this many women seek abortions for reasons a large number of pro-lifers would consider acceptable, then abortion is too regrettably necessary for pro-choicers to consider compromising. Agreement 9. If doctors never study or practice the abortion procedure then an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman is less likely to be safe and free from complications. Some extremists in the pro-life movement do not care about the fate of a woman seeking an abortion. She gets what she deserves, I have heard some say, regarding the common sense notion that abortion should be a safe procedure. I'm not expecting this agreement to strike a chord with the to hell with the woman camp. On the other hand, many respected pro-life moderates have repeatedly pledged that abortion should not be denied a woman for whom the procedure was a matter of life and death. President George Bush, for example, repeatedly said that abortion should be safe, legal, and free from complications in cases where it would save a woman's life. That same president, however, proposed many steps to remove the study and practice of abortion from all hospitals, clinics, 
even medical schools. He didn't want doctors answering patient questions about the procedure. He used presidential authority to quash any study involving abortion, including studies about its dangers, I would assume. He even removed a chapter from a guidebook that was sent to all insurance-carrying federal employees because family planning was included in that chapter. I wouldn't bother positing Agreement 9 to a group like Operation Rescue. But George Bush is not a demagogue. So I ask, if doctors never study or practice the abortion procedure, isn't an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman much less likely to be safe and free from complications? To personalize the snakes just a bit, if you are needing an emergency open-heart surgery, would you rather pick a surgeon who has performed the procedure a hundred times or a surgeon who is reading the instructions and easy-to-follow diagrams at the operating table? Safe and legal can mean a variety of things. At a minimum, though, a medical operation must be taught, studied, and practiced if we are going to presume to use these terms to describe it. Agreement 9 may seem harmless enough because we view it in the context of saving a woman's life. It does beg a question, though. Does abortion exist? This agreement presumes that abortion does exist, and also that abortion should exist, because in 30,000 or so rare instances per year, it may prove necessary. This trite observation, this observation that abortion exists, is crucial. What is the goal of the pro-life movement? One clear answer is the goal that abortion no longer exists. In order for the pro-life movement to achieve this goal, that abortion cease to exist, it cannot ultimately compromise on the matter of exceptions to save a woman's life. That's because abortion cannot not exist and yet exist in rare emergency circumstances at the same time. Once again, this potential agreement is undermined by the philosophies of the very group seeking the compromise. One group will not and should not abandon the necessity of teaching and studying abortion as a medical procedure. The other group cannot possibly juggle the logical inconsistency of abortion being completely eliminated and yet available in a single tragic yet unmistakably worthy instance. None of us wants a frightened pregnant woman to die in childbirth. For that reason, we must agree that doctors should study and practice the abortion procedure, else an emergency abortion to save the life or health of a pregnant woman won't be as safe or free from complications as society would expect. Unfortunately, this agreement only makes the debate over the existence of abortion more unsettling. Agreement 10. If a person threatens the life or welfare of a man's wife, most of us would understand the man's decision to kill this assailant, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. Is there such a thing as a centrist view of abortion? Since efforts to compromise from each corner of the issue seem to fail, does any middle ground exist? If you look at how resistant our nation is to embrace political changes on abortion rights, it seems likely that a centrist anchor of some sort is holding on to a status quo. Any pollster could describe this compromise to you. It's a combination between the belief that Abortion is the killing of an unborn child, and the belief that a woman, however regrettably, has the right to do so.
as a society, we never discuss this compromise because of how uncomfortable it is. Pro-choice groups prefer to deny that abortion represents a killing of any kind. Pro-life groups refuse to accept that the killing of a child can ever be acceptable, since it is, well, regrettable. They would say it should be banned. Centrist groups have a hard time reconciling the notion that something can be right, quote-unquote, and undesirable at the same time. I casually mentioned this paradox earlier while insisting that abortion is a bad thing. There are two reasons why we might refrain from banning a bad thing, and abortion is an issue that exemplifies both. One reason I call morality's supply versus demand. A bad thing can be legal, and if no one ever does it, we are not harmed by its legality. In other words, just because a supply for abortion exists doesn't mean anyone will ever demand one. The other reason to refrain from banning a bad thing is more commonly understood. We hear it when people use sentences that end with the phrase, if I have to. For example, I don't want to fight in a war and kill people I don't even know, but I will if I have to. When President George H.W. Bush spoke of saving the life of the mother, he was making an if-I-have-to statement. While pro-life groups grapple with their enigma, how to ban abortion completely and still save the life of that woman President Bush was talking about, the rest of us may grant that abortion exists for a variety of if-I-have-to reasons. Since pro-choice and pro-life efforts to compromise have overlapped on some of those if-I-have-to reasons, uh, reasons like uh, rape, incest, health of the mother, making the claim should be simple enough. I have another question, though. What is a right to life? We have heard this expression so often used that most of us take its meaning, whatever that may be, for granted. Is the right to life a guarantee of earthly immortality? No. If that were the case, God would violate human rights every time a person ascends to heaven. Is the right to life a manifesto against murder? Well, if so, it wouldn't apply to abortion. After all, in this debate, agreement one is clear. Abortion is not murder. Is the right to life the right not to be killed? That may be as close as an honest answer as the pro-life movement could possibly offer. The right not to be killed would not prohibit God from ascending a person into heaven. It would not apply generally to infectious disease or old age, but only to a person killing another person. I hope from the previous inappropriate conversation that some of you have tracked down online the uh, Judith Jarvis Thompson article, A Defense of Abortion. Um, it's worth looking at that from the perspective of it being a footnote about the concept of minimally decent Samaritanism. I would encourage all of you to seek out her article from 1971 because Agreement 10 has as much to do with her work as my work. She challenges the existence of a right not to be killed. If you know much about American rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and property, you may have drawn the same conclusion Thompson reaches in her essay. That being, in some cases, we do have the right to kill. In Agreement 8, I introduced a common-sense legal concept. A woman has the right to kill a person who places her life in jeopardy, particularly if killing the person is the only way to end the threat. Clearly, this is a right to kill, and it takes precedence, in this case, over any definition of a right to life. 
Does this same principle apply when the killer, so to speak, is someone other than the woman? The easy answer, in the case of a paid agent like a doctor who performs abortions, is to say that a bodyguard may enforce this person's right to kill under these circumstances. Additionally, I prefer an answer that takes the abortion debate inside the home. I call this answer Agreement 10. If a person threatens the life or welfare of a man's wife, most of us would understand this man's decision to kill the assailant, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. If necessary, I apologize for the agony I'm no doubt bringing to political conservatives. You see, Agreement 10 has as much to do with the right to bear arms as the right to abortion. It is an agreement that a man's home is his castle. It resonates strongly with those who support the right to carry concealed weapons. You see, even the most ardent pro-life conservatives would grant a woman the right to kill a mugger on the subway. By threatening her, the mugger forfeited his right to life. This is the same thing we would say about the home intruder. He left his right to life on the front porch when he broke into the home. Having brought political conservatives into the agreement, allow me to deal with politically liberal pro-lifers. The liberal argument would hinge on the innocence of the person being killed. Since we are talking about an unborn child, the issue of innocence does play a role. The conservative, man's home is his castle view, is clear. It doesn't matter how otherwise innocent you are if you trespass and arouse fears. Liberals, however, commonly attach stipulations like state of mind to these types of killings. For that reason, I must make a distinction between being innocent and being absent malice. Just because you are incapable of intending to do something wrong, it doesn't mean that you cannot harm someone. And if you harm someone, you cannot be called innocent whether your actions are malicious or not. Perhaps an example would help. Instead of a crazed psychopathic killer, the intruder in this man's home is a mentally retarded 12-year-old boy who is large for his age but too mentally underdeveloped to act out of malice. Would we imprison the man for killing this boy, who is, quote, innocent, unquote, from a pro-life perspective? Especially if the man was startled and shot the moment the boy burst into the master bedroom, would we throw him in jail? If your answer is yes, then we had better change every self-defense law in the United States as soon as possible. If your answer is no, then you agree. A man has the right to kill a stranger whom he believes might possibly threaten the life or welfare of the man's wife inside their home. The stranger in this case has no right to life. Or, at least, the stranger's right to life never takes precedence over the homeowner's right to kill. Should the man regret killing the retarded 12-year-old boy once he realizes how innocent the boy was? Yes. Is abortion a bad thing? Yes. Should we arrest the man and imprison him because he regrets exercising his rights? No. No, we shouldn't. You draw the lines, the connection should be clear. To anyone who might suggest that the connection between the husband-slash-homeowner and the pregnant woman is not clear, I again urge you to seek out and read Judith Jarvis Thompson's article, a defense of abortion. In this country, we do not constitutionally require one person against his will to maintain the life of another person. If I choose to donate my kidney to my brother, I am a hero and my act is brave and self-sacrificing. 
if I choose not to donate that same kidney. I cannot be called the murderer of my brother, even if he dies of kidney failure. Again, pro-life groups who are tempted to counter this argument make the mistake of believing that something must be banned because it is bad, or in this case, something must be legally enforced because it is a good thing. I mean, donating a vital organ to save a loved one's life is undeniably a good thing. But where does the law stop in these cases? What does Agreement 10 ultimately tell us about abortion? Well, society grants the right to kill if necessary to expel an unwanted intruder from your home. With abortion, we are not talking about an unwanted person inside your house. We are talking about an unwanted person inside your body. The homeowner in Agreement 10 could have sought another method for eliminating his problem. Although he is not a criminal for killing the intruder, and his bodyguard would not be a criminal for killing the same intruder, the husband might have spared the assailant's life by calling the police, or using pepper spray instead of a gun. That said, a woman has only one option if she chooses to expel an unwanted person from inside her body. That option, abortion, is a bad thing. It kills an unborn child. It dashes the hope of waiting adoptive parents. It surely ends a life course the woman herself regrets traveling. That said, we must agree that her decision is a proper exercise of her rights, over and above anyone else's right to life, even if we wouldn't take the same action ourselves for moral reasons. It's history. And from about that time, 3500, 3000 BC, until about the American Revolution, the figures Alexander, Julius, Caesar, and Tecumseh, Woodrow Wilson, King Gatorick, William the Conqueror, and his Norman, the events. That that whole year, 1066, which led up to the Battle of Hastings, was a pivotal year. The drama. Another one of these successors behind the backs of everyone else steals Alexander's body and takes it back to his little territory in Egypt. The deep questions. What the heck happened? At the end of the Bronze Age. It's Hardcore History. Get Hardcore History at dancarlin.com. Are we all in agreement? I do not believe that a consensus was a reasonable expectation. In an issue that once led an ordained minister working for Operation Rescue to deny the deity of Jesus Christ, I won't be shocked if many on the extreme sides of the abortion issue will find some way to disagree or at least deny these obvious areas of agreement. Why bother then? Well, I'm, I'm seeking honesty. Unless we honestly assess our beliefs, we will never be able to reconcile them. Will acknowledging these areas of agreement solve anything? Perhaps not. We still have a long way to go. That said, until we acknowledge that we must address the demand for abortion rather than the supply, for example, we will never even start the debate on how to curtail the demand. That's right. We are too busy fighting over the issue to even begin addressing it. As a nation, Americans have at least 45 years invested in public debate over abortion. If we begin to find small areas of agreement and eventually build these agreements into a consensus, we may find an acceptable solution to our conflicting opinions. If and when we reach that goal, what will we think of the abortion debate that has raged up until now? What will we think about a list such as this? I have a few answers. Looking back from the future, we will look at a list of agreements such as this with bewilderment. We will wonder why 
anyone ever thought it was necessary to persuade others about ten simple notions that should have been taken for granted. We will look back on the history of the pro-choice movement and marvel at how many outrageous restrictions on the right of privacy will then be viewed as perfectly acceptable costs of living in a society. Furthermore, we will marvel at how easily those compromises were made once an atmosphere of trust replaced an angry storm of accusations and bomb threats. We will look back at the pro-life movement with a mixture of nostalgia and embarrassment. Like a 1960s campus sit-in, much of the early pro-life history will be seen as comically ineffective, yet unquestionably earnest. The nostalgia will not have a sweet aftertaste, though. For decades, anti-abortion techniques have centered on battle cries like, Abortion is murder, and God is pro-life. These slogans, and the campaigns behind them, have been aggressively applied. The result? Abortions have been held down to $1.5 million per year, as if that's the best we can do. I sympathize with anyone in the pro-life movement who finds some of these ten agreements hard to swallow. The middle agreements in particular imply that pro-life forces abandon the ban and seek other avenues, like granting that abortion will exist while seeking ways to limit the number of women who feel stuck with such an undesirable alternative. Let's say that a different approach does work, and works sooner than anyone might have expected, say, 30 years. How many unborn children will have needlessly died from unwanted pregnancies that could have been prevented if pro-life groups and pro-choice groups had sought some honest areas of agreement decades earlier, rather than using demonizing rhetoric like murderer and zealot? Who will be responsible for the needless deaths of those unborn children during the war years of the abortion debate? The doctor? The mother? The baby's father? The president? Legislature? Or courts? Perhaps they all can share the blame. If we cannot come to an honest agreement about some of the solution-blocking issues that surround abortion— All those people can share the blame with you and me. It will be our fault, too. Don't think this is 10 Agreements and Done. I don't believe I'm done with this issue yet, but I'm going to take some time between this discussion and some future discussions. I want to talk maybe a little bit about that concept of adoptive Samaritanism and and, uh, minimally decent Samaritanism from Judith Jarvis Thompson. And I also have a response for those people who have attempted, successfully or otherwise, to refute some of Thompson's points. I may also, even in the further future than that, deal with my own personal perspective. It's uh, not something I've covered here at all, so don't draw any conclusions about my pro-life or pro-choice credentials. I am neither. Before I go, though, I want to use our different drummer to cover a topic that I've hit a little bit once before, um, the question of the use of hypotheticals in discussion 
and in discourse. The time that I mentioned it before, it was a direct address to Christian opposition to the use of hypothetical examples. As soon as in an argument or a discussion about a social issue, perhaps, with a Christian, you'll often hear the person dismiss the idea that hypothetical arguments make any sense and that I don't want to hear your your unlikely suggestion. In this case, we talked about 30,000 women on an annual basis uh, in that bucket of um, rape, incest, um, health complications, so forth and so on. And whether 30,000 can be considered an unlikely number, I don't think so. But you know, sometimes you'll come up, you can easily come up with a hypothetical situation that is so obscure that the odds of finding a real human being to point to are slim. On the other hand, I have heard people tell me that uh, I have cited a hypothetical situation that isn't real when I could have attached the name of the person, either in cases in the American Midwest or in a um, recent case in Brazil, that it is not hypothetical to talk about a uh, very young woman, barely pubescent, uh, pregnant with uh, children born of incest, those kinds of situations. These are not hypothetical. These are real. And they may not be common, but I think any law that doesn't take care of the uncommon situation is a mistake, especially if you do not need a, an outright ban to address the issues that are of great concern. So when having those conversations, what I tend to do with Christians is say, listen, I'm a big believer in parables. I think that a great man once came to the earth and taught a lot of people using a lot of parables. And a lot of those parables were written down, recorded in a book that as Christians, we're supposed to follow, not just read, not just find interesting that as a Christian, you're not halfway through one of the gospels, raising your hand to complain and gavel down Jesus Christ for the audacity he has to use parables because parables are in many ways, nothing more than a broad hypothetical. But I don't want to end there because it's possible that I have some people on the pro-choice side of the issue who do not consider themselves to be Christian and also would question the use of, of a hypothetical example. So I want to cite one more resource, and I know I'm doing this different drummer an incredible injustice. It reminds me of the very short set of quotations I offered for Thomas Jefferson when I cited him earlier as a different drummer. I'm going to, I'm going to make the same egregious error here. I won't, uh, at least unless I revisit him as a different drummer, cover any biographical material about Aristotle, I won't go into a uh, broad overview of his beliefs, but I want to use Aristotle here for one really key quotation, because there are two kinds of people in the world, but it comes to these kinds of discussions. I realize it's a false dichotomy to divide the world in two this way, but bear with me. There are people who can follow an argument past a comparison or a hypothetical or a parable, and there are people who can't. And the question is, are the people who cannot accept a hypothetical example, or a metaphor, um, are they right? Or are they limiting the argument in a way that is anti-intellectual? I don't believe that I'm willing to point fingers and say, well, you're just not bright enough to follow this discussion. I think that's dismissive and it's rude and I won't do it. But I will offer these words from Aristotle to provide a perspective on how I feel about it. One of the most influential theorists of literature insists that mastery of metaphor is the mark of genius. And one of the most masterful geniuses of metaphor himself, Aristotle, provides this statement. The greatest thing by far is to be a master of metaphor. 
It is the one thing that cannot be learned from others. It is the mark of genius, since a good metaphor implies an eye for resemblance. Aristotle, from Poetics, written somewhere in the ballpark of 384 to 322 before Christ. Aristotle here is referring to the mastery of metaphor as a sign of genius. And I can understand why some people in a debate where they would prefer the issues to be black and white, they would prefer to call a bad thing bad and make it go away or call a good thing good and force everyone to do it against their will, that those people might not be what Aristotle would describe as geniuses. But I think Aristotle just described Jesus Christ as a genius, someone who beyond any doubt was a master of metaphor, at least as recorded in in the Gospels in the New Testament. And here, if some of these comparisons didn't work for you, if maybe I've missed the mark because there's an assumption inside the analogy that isn't quite right, or it's a, it's hypothetical in a way that another example would be better, well, I'm open to that feedback. What I'm not open to, and that's maybe the first time I've ever said I'm not open to a piece of information in the conversation. I'm not open to anyone saying, that doesn't matter. It was just hypothetical. There's a hypothetical 9 or 10-year-old girl in Brazil, pregnant from the incestuous sexual relations at the hands of her uncle, where Brazilian society didn't address that issue very well because it wasn't prepared to deal with that situation because the government and the church viewed that as, you know, hypothetically unlikely. What do you do with the hypothetically unlikely situation when it happens to you? If you're a genius, you would have already planned for it. If you'd like to put some constructive conversation into this inappropriate conversation, I can be reached at IC underscore Greg at hotmail.com and comments are enabled at the website http colon slash slash inappropriate conversations dot podbean dot com. Thanks for listening.
This show is part of the Pride 48 Network. Find all the best shows under the rainbow at pride48.com.